So last Sunday, we were blessed to have Stacy Gleddy Smith share the word with us from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. She shared on the second half of that passage. If you didn't catch it, I recommend check it out on the website. She did a great job with a very difficult text. Now, since we finished chapter 14 last week, you may be looking at your bulletin and saying, maybe he's confused. Why are we jumping to chapter 16? Why would Pastor Chris skip the most theologically rich chapter, perhaps, of all of Paul's letters? Well, I didn't exactly skip it. Remember, around Easter time, we took four weeks in a row and went through chapter 15, so you can always refer to those sermons on the website. Uh, after that, we went backwards, and now we are uh, finishing up 1 Corinthians. Next week will be our last message after nearly two years walking through this delicious letter from Paul. But we do need to talk a little bit about chapter 15 because chapter 16 comes after that, right? So in chapter 15, Paul declares that the reality of the resurrection of the body is for real for those who are in Christ. And he says that faith in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies is central to the Christian faith. Paul argues, in fact, that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus couldn't have been resurrected from the dead. And if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, then we're all in serious trouble, like dead in our sins and transgressions. But thanks be to God that Jesus did rise from the grave. Usually I get to work up to the gospel part of the message. I'm starting with it right now. He he did rise from the grave, and there are over 500 witnesses that, that saw Jesus. Many of them touched him, ate meals with him. And the promise of the gospel is not only that Jesus forgives our sins. That's great in itself. But it's also the fact that one day you and I will receive resurrection, resurrection bodies, a body that doesn't die, that doesn't get sick, that doesn't have the same limitations we have, a body in which our heart and our will work correctly, like they're in line with God's heart and God's will. That is such good news. And no matter what ails us on this side of the resurrection, no matter what powers oppress or bad the world seems to give us, you and me and creation itself will be made new through the goodness and power of Jesus. Amen. You can go home. That's, that's, that's the gospel. But, okay, let me just keep going a little bit. <laughs> that's what chapter 15 offers us. Now, Let's see how Paul is going to follow up on his most hope-filled, mind-blowing, reality-bending passage. What will he have to say next? If you can stand with me, please, we will find out. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 9. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections will be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, 
For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Lord, thank you for your servant Paul, not only for his ministry and his words, but for the preservation of those things. Would you open up (laughs) this seemingly mundane text to us, Lord, about a man's travel plans and a collection he's taking, and show us how your good news shines through this passage. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. That is part of the fun of this, I've got to say. I've already shared the gospel with you in the opening first few minutes of the message. We talked about resurrection. We talked about forgiveness of sin. But I, I, this is the part I love about teaching and preaching is that, you know, you've probably passed through this chapter 16 a hundred times and maybe just like, this is dumb. This is some guy's itinerary and a bunch of names and I'm just going to get on to 2 Corinthians where the good stuff will start up again, right? I just want to say, watch for the gospel in this passage. Okay, but now let's, let's take it down a notch. We just went through chapter 15, this amazing treatise on the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus. And Paul follows it up with, now concerning the resurrection, or the collection, concerning the collection. And California Adventure Theme Park, right across the street from Disneyland, pretty much connected, there's this ride called Soaring Over California. Some of you have been on it, right? It's a 4D experience. You're strapped into this movable seat, and then the lights go out, and there's an IMAX-sized screen, and you are literally like, it feels the thing's moving, and the screen's coming, and you're like flying. Your feet feel like they're touching the treetops, and, and then the 4D stuff happens when you go by the surf, and little misters shoot you in the face. It's like, oh, I'm really on the surf, and then you go over orange groves, and you can smell the citrus, like these little squirters, I don't know what they're doing, pine smells and all this kind of stuff. It's, it takes you away from reality for about four or five minutes. It's incredible. You're, the, these fans blow your hair, and then it's over, and you're ushered out the door into the blazing hot Southern California sunshine and long lines, and someone always has to go potty. Back to reality. You go from soaring over California, which is this special experience, a five-minute respite from your everyday life, and then you're ushered back rudely into the hustle and bustle. It's a bit of an exaggeration. You're ushered back into Disneyland. I mean, like, how bad is that? But I mean, compared to soaring over California, it's a bit, you know, overpriced food. Come on, it's all that stuff. I think you get my point. From the soaring heights of resurrection life to the mundane talk of taking up a collection for Paul's ministry and his travel itinerary. On the surface, the transition from the glory of chapter 15 to the ordinary nature of chapter 16 feels abrupt and disappointing. On the surface, that's how it seems. When have you known me to stay on the surface when it comes to a text? Come on. There is a reason I chose the name Following Jesus in the Real World for this sermon series in 1 Corinthians. It's a letter to a church struggling to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a pluralistic society, in hedonistic culture, in a church divided by pride and prejudice. Over and over again, Paul has been saying to the Corinthians, be who you are in Christ. Jesus has already died and risen from the grave. He's already redeemed you. Now, live in such a way that reflects that reality. I'm not asking you to do something out of your nature. You have a new nature now in Christ. Be who you are. 
And I can think of few places in the scripture that illustrates this gospel in the midst of the mundane. I can think of few greater places that illustrates that than this passage right here, this transition from chapter 15 to chapter 16. Let's take a look at that last part of chapter 15. Paul has just proclaimed the good news of the resurrection. He's declared the death, uh, the death of death and the hope of eternal resurrected life in Jesus. And then he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, waiting patiently for the resurrection. Now, I lied to you. He didn't say that. He doesn't say anything near that. This is what he actually writes. Pay attention. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Because the resurrection is real, your work matters. Because the resurrection is a reality, get on with the work of the Lord. We talk a lot in this church about how our vocation is missional, how our, what you do outside these walls is and can be the work of the Lord. But in this letter, Paul has a very concrete example for how this Corinthian church can get on with the work of the Lord. They can gather a collection of money among themselves to send to their struggling brothers and sisters in the church of Jerusalem. I want to look at this passage through two lenses. The first is a practical lens. Like, that's what we're going to start off with, just the practicalities of what Paul is saying. The second lens, we're going to circle back and look at it through a theological lens, okay? And I'll I'll tip you off to when we're doing that. First of all, the practicalities. There was a need in Jerusalem. Paul doesn't go into great detail here, which implies that this collection was something that they were already familiar with. Like we've seen before in Paul's letters, when he says, or when he begins a phrase with, now concerning, he's almost always referring to something, a question that the Corinthians had written him about. Refreshingly, in this case, there doesn't seem to be any controversy from the Corinthian side of things about this collection. No one seems to be writing, complaining about it. Paul doesn't seem to have to argue that they should be doing this and give them a bunch of reasons. Maybe they just had questions about, hey, when should this be ready? When are you coming? That kind of thing. But don't miss the point in the details. Paul is equating taking up a collection for the struggling church of Jerusalem, he's equating that with getting on with the work of the Lord, abounding in the work of the Lord. Since Jesus will make all things new, since there's a resurrection, since you will be taken care of by the Lord himself, you can be generous and you can minister to your brothers and sisters who are in need. You don't have to fear not having enough or not being taken care of. And just in case, Corinthians and Lettered Streets, just in case you thought because of the resurrection that the body doesn't matter or this world doesn't matter anymore, I am telling you, implies Paul, that the resurrection directly impacts your everyday life. If there's no resurrection, if the resurrection wasn't true, then you better just look out for yourself because nobody else is. The neo-atheists are right if there's no resurrection. Survival of the fittest Go home now. But precisely because Jesus will rescue us, because he will bring his kingdom, you can be ridiculously generous now. The resurrection plays out in very practical terms. 
Now, apparently, Paul had given instructions to the church of Galatia, and he gives the Corinthians the same instructions. On the first day of every week, they're to set aside a portion of their earnings as each one has prospered. The idea is that each person in the church or each family unit would set aside money, and when Paul came, he would collect the collection and send a delegation from the Corinthian church to the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he says, I don't even want to take a collection when I show up. I want you guys to be about that work. And then when I get there, we'll just gather it all up and we'll send it to Jerusalem. Now, this collection that he's talking about, one one differentiation I want to make, it's not the same thing as tithing. Tithing is the giving of 10% of one's income to the Lord. It's a percentage giving. It was and is part of the gathered worship, what people did and do when we gather for worship. This is a church Paul planted, the one in Corinth, and so we can assume that they tithed. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a special collection that is made up out of the generosity of the people. Notice that when Paul talks about this collection for the saints in Jerusalem, he doesn't say, now we're going to start a campaign to raise X amount of dollars. Uh, And he doesn't say, we're going to start a giving pledge drive and I want you each to pledge this percentage of your income or pledge this amount of dollars each week. Are those ways of taking an offering or building a building or doing a project wrong? Not necessarily, but they're not necessarily right either. And here's what I love about this passage. I love how Paul knows his church. Those other methods might be okay in our setting, but they would not have been okay in Paul's setting, and here's why. There were no salaries back then as we know them. You know, some of us have a salary job where as long as we have the same job, we pretty much know that in two weeks we're going to get the same amount every two weeks. And so it's easier to do a percentage giving or a budget that's a year out or five-year plans and things like that. Uh, Some of you are hourly wage, and you know that if I work this many hours, I get this many dollars. It's just kind of the way it works. Uh, And even those of you who are independent contractors, if you have enough bids out, you can kind of figure out economically that you're generally shooting to make this much in a year. And so some of our independent contractors tithe maybe once a year, a percentage of what they end up with at the end of the year. But in the ancient world, even the the wealthy aristocrats, they were wealthy because A, they had land that was passed down through generations, and B, they had connections. So, like, let's say I'm a wealthy landowner. Um, I may not have a lot coming in, but Ryan and Christine are uh, working my land. And as a, as a bonus, every week what they do is they bring the best of their produce to my front doorstep. And so I've always got an abundance of food. And uh, Aaron and Meg are, are fishermen and women, and uh, they bring me the catch of the week, and they bring me a little bit of what they make as a... As a as a thank you because I let them fish off of the beach that my family's owned for 10 generations, okay? And so I get all this fresh seafood and stuff, and, uh, and Schoon's been using my legal connections for his new business, and so he's a merchant in the shop, and so he brings me a percentage. And so it's a lot like the Godfather. <laughs> it's a lot like the Godfather. The Potter familias in these communities may not have had a lot of like businesses going on themselves, but because other people depended on them and their connections, they were constantly getting produce and favors and all this kind of thing. So the aristocrats were like that. And so if it was an abundant week, I could set aside a portion of my abundance. Now, the, we also know that in the Corinthian church, there were slave class people. 
Slave class people got paid, if they got paid much at all, they got paid usually daily, and so they might set aside a little bit less. And then there were the merchant class. And so let's say Tim and Marcia just set up shop um, selling pianos. And, uh, you know, Marcia's been holding on to this inventory forever. Tim's really working his buns off trying to get uh, people to buy these pianos, and uh, they just are not making good sales this month. But then the Ithsmian Games comes, and everyone from out of town has heard of Marcia's great pianos, and she sells out of her stock in one week. So it's a lot more boom or bust economy back then. And so sometimes people were able to set aside a little bit, sometimes a lot, but it looked very different than what things look like today. So rather than giving this church a dollar amount, everyone should give this, or a percentage amount, Paul tells each one to just give a portion out of what they've been blessed with that week. Each week, take stock of what you've been blessed with and set aside a portion. To do it week by week. The takeaway of this passage, if you are just straight up, I want the application, Pastor Chris, okay. The takeaway of this passage is not how we should structure our giving. I think that can change with the times and how we're paid and those kind of things. It's not how to take a special offering. The takeaway on a practical level is to encourage the church to give generously in support of other churches as they strive to share the gospel of Jesus. The church of Jerusalem was struggling under Roman persecution and Jewish persecution. Plus, there was a famine going on, which the Corinthians knew firsthand. Remember, we talked about the famine in Corinth. Paul himself persecuted the church in Jerusalem before he had a conversion experience. But this is what it means to follow Jesus in the real world. It means to take our koinonia, our partnership in the gospel, to take that partnership seriously enough to cross boundaries of local churches and regional churches, and it means sharing with each other generously. Last week, our church was the recipient of generosity. We kicked off our service by having Pastor Rick from Fountain Community Church, from whom we rent this building, and he presented us with a gift of $500 that was a collection from the congregants of Fountain Community Church. That was pretty cool. They took that to help support our Panama mission team that, by the way, leaves a week from tomorrow. It's crazy. We, in turn, took up a collection at a fundraiser we did in February from brothers and sisters in Christ who were from other churches, from other cities. Many of us had family members that came from out of town to help support raising thousands of dollars to help build a school classroom in Panama next week. Uh, Coming alongside the church in Panama to reach neighbors with their own neighbors with the good news of Jesus, strengthening marriages through a marriage class that uh, we're going to offer, and offering mutual encouragement. This is part of the work that we're to be about together. And many of you have directly supported the Covenant Church in Congo through sponsorship through Covenant Kids Congo. Uh, Together, uh, the Covenant Church of of America is trying to uh, uh, invest, adopt 10,000 children in order to transform Gemina, this small community in Congo, the poorest, literally the number one poorest nation in the world. Um, This church sponsored 40 of those children. And... um, bringing clean water, education, health care, and the gospel to a place. But they already have the gospel in so many ways because the Covenant Church in Congo is there. They've been there far before we ever were a church here in the Lettered Streets. 
They far outnumber the church in the lettered streets, but it's our privilege to get to partner with them in their ministry. It's amazing. That's the practical application of this passage. It's a solid application where it's give generously as God has provided for us. But that's only part of the story, and I want to look at the story through a theological lens to see and show you how much more this passage has to say. To read this passage through a theological lens, it's going to help us to remember a little something about the man who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul. Before Paul was a follower of Jesus, his name was Saul, and he was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish scholar versed in the Hebrew scriptures and their traditions and their laws. He was a man who prided himself not only on keeping the biblical law, but also the ordinances and Pharisaic customs that proved to others that he was a holy man. He, like his colleagues and the communities of faith that they served, longed for the deliverance from their Roman oppressors. But it wasn't just Rome they were longing to be out from under. It was oppression in general. You see, first of all, it was the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and currently, as Paul is writing, the Romans. And the prophet spoke of a time when Israel would be rescued The day of the Lord, it's called. The time when God would come and dwell among his people and the enemy would be vanquished. As Brent read earlier out of Isaiah chapter 60, it would be a day when Israel's sons and daughters of the diaspora, of the dispersion, would come back into the family fold. And it would be a time when the Gentiles would come to Jerusalem bearing wealth and gifts. This is the vision that Paul would have longed for and taught in the synagogue. It was the hope of the people of Israel. And Paul himself until, well, until he met Jesus. You see, when Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, his theological categories were confronted and his Thinking had to change. It's kind of like the first explorers who thought that the world was flat, who thought if you sailed too far in any direction from Europe, you might fall off the edge into the abyss, into hell itself, until some explorers got a little too far out, got a little bit lost, and realized we've never seen these constellations before. We're literally on the other side of the world and had to reconstruct their whole cosmology, their whole vision of reality was altered because they had experienced something that they had never thought possible, hadn't conceived of before, that the earth could be round and not flat. For Paul, that meant changing the way he read the scriptures to fit this new reality of Jesus, this man who was resurrected from the dead, this one who did things that uh, until he met him, He thought only God can do. Only God can speak to a storm, to the weather, and make it stop. But yet there's this man who can do those things. And and, and he met this man named Jesus who said things that only God had a right to say. Like, I forgive you of your sins. Paul and the early Christians came to see that in Jesus, the faithful servant, the a role that was previously assigned to the nation of Israel, Jesus was embodying that role. It was as if Jesus fulfilled the duties of Israel in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. In fact, 
That's how Paul and others came to understand Jesus, as if all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation would eventually point to Jesus. Think about it. There was Israel living under Roman oppression, holding on to passages like Isaiah 60, the dispersed Jews coming home, the nations bearing gifts and paying homage. And then, in the fullness of time, this baby is born in Bethlehem. And who should come to worship him but shepherds? One of the most marginalized groups within Israel. The children who were pushed out, who were told that they weren't holy enough to worship in the temple, were coming home. They were the ones who were there, who the angels came to, who came to worship Jesus. And while the wise men of King Herod's court studied the scriptures and knew even where the Messiah was supposed to be born, who was it that actually came to worship Jesus bearing gifts of frankincense and myrrh like Isaiah 60 verse 6 talks about? Pagan, Gentile, magi from the east. The early Christians were confronted by Jesus' resurrection and it forced them to look back on his life and reinterpret the details of his life through Scripture. Which brings us to our passage. Paul's encounter with Jesus didn't just inform how he thought of the past and the Old Testament Scriptures. It also shaped how he thought of the future. Paul was passionate to have the churches he planted and pastored in Greece and Italy and Asia Minor to help the church in Jerusalem for practical reasons, obviously, as we've already seen, but also for theological reasons. Think of that picture, having Gentiles from Galatia and Rome and Corinth and Philippi and Tros and Thessalonica and others, all bringing their treasures to Jerusalem but not for the glory of the state of Israel, but for the glory of Jesus and the well-being of his church. After all, when Paul was persecuting the, Jesus, uh, the church and he met Jesus on the road, Jesus says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute the church, Jesus is saying, you persecute me. Conversely, when you bring your treasures and your offerings and your support to the church in Jerusalem, are you not also bringing those things to the Lord? In fact, this is a total aside. I introduced the offering earlier. I sat down and Stella had a question. Dad, how does the money get to Jesus? It's a great question. And I just got to share with her right there in the front pew that when we help other people offer other people will keep drink of cold water, visit people in prison when we support the poor, when we love one another. We are doing those things unto Jesus. Amen? Right? Paul was passionate to see the unity of the church. He wanted the Gentile churches to appreciate their Jewish roots. He wanted the church in Jerusalem to see the fruit of the Spirit and all its diverse flavors as it manifests itself through the Gentile churches. He wanted delegates from each of these Gentile churches to go with him, yeah, partly for practical reasons to, I mean, you're, you're, there's no Western Union, right? So you've got like coinage, and you're traveling long distances with a lot of money. There's bandits and stuff, so you, you, you went with people. But he also knew the value of taking delegates from these churches and having them meet the leaders of the Jerusalem church, of having the Jerusalem church put faces to names for these outlying places that they may have never visited. 
that they heard these uncircumcised Gentiles were coming into the fold of faith. But then they got to meet these warm people who had traveled long distances with self-sacrificial offerings, and they broke bread together, I'm sure about it. When we meet people face to face, walls come down. We can talk about theories like love your neighbor as yourself. We should talk about those things we do. But real people, there's nothing that beats that encounter. And Paul knew the power of putting faces and names to people and places, right? But what I think is most powerful and what I think has the most powerful implications for us is that Paul wanted desperately for the church to participate in God's kingdom breaking into the world. When Paul sees the Gentile churches bringing an offering to Jerusalem, he sees the nations bearing gifts to Zion. He sees, in a little way, part of that Isaiah 60 being fulfilled. You see it in a microcosm with the, the Magi coming. You see it in a microcosm uh, of, of Pastor Rick's offering to our church and then this team going to Panama bearing, hopefully, encouragement and love and warmth and greetings from this church but also hopefully some support and care. Paul sees the church somehow, someway, participating in the new world, somehow being a part of God's kingdom breaking into the world. He sees the church as being a sign of the times, the fullness of time. And here's the deal. It's a choice and it's a fact. Like the kingdom of God... (laughs) It's breaking into our world. The kingdom of heaven will come in full one day. I don't know when. The Bible says don't obsess about it. Just know Jesus is coming. Be ready. It's going to happen. It's going to happen whether or not you and I are selfish with our stuff. It's going to happen. We can't stop it. Jesus is bringing it. It's going to happen whether or not we uh, are dragging our feet, if we're fearful, if we are... Um, inward-facing and a selfish little church. It's going to happen. The choice is, will we participate in it? Because what a privilege that you and I actually get to be more than spectators. We get to be participants in this thing happening. It doesn't depend on you and me. That's almost the great thing about it. It's like we get to ride in on the coattails of the kingdom coming. We get to participate in God's movement in the world. You and I, we can be signs, living signs of the times when we love each other deeply and generously and graciously and and with effectiveness. We are signs pointing to the reality of God's reign. You didn't think that was in this passage, did you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for your resurrection. This passage that Paul writes, Lord, we know it is only written and only has legs, only has power because you're resurrected and you promise us resurrection. You promise that we don't need to fear in this life because there is a new life coming. There's redemption, recreation, wholeness. I, I thank you, Lord, that 
that isn't just something that's going to happen that we just watch from the sidelines. At least we don't have to. Thank you for including us, Lord, for giving us an invitation to participate in your work. I pray, Lord, that you would give each one what they need today, whether that's faith in the resurrection itself, faith in your goodness, belief that we can trust you, or an expanded vision, imagination for what um, abounding in the work of the Lord could look like. I pray, God, you would take those prayers, those desires, those needs, and meet us in those places, Lord. Help us to be a church that participates. Amen.